Hi, I'm Ron Coleman, a partner in the Dillon Law Group, social media legend and free speech enthusiast. When I started the Coleman Nation podcast in the spring of 2021, its focus was on free expression and censorship on the internet. But as important as that subject is to me, which is very important, I felt hemmed in in the podcast. I wanted to spend more time talking to the interesting people I've met in my legal and free speech work without feeling a need to have them all make the same point. So I culminated the first series of the podcast and have started the second series. I hope you'll enjoy these conversations as much as I have recording them. Hello, culminators. Today, we're going to talk to Dr. Naomi Wolf, one of the most interesting and controversial people's people's English, one of the most interesting and controversial people on Twitter, uh, which is how I came to know her. She wasn't on Twitter for a while, not because there was no Twitter and not because she was slow in adopting Twitter, but because she had been banned from Twitter. She was banned from Twitter, it seemed like it was a couple of years, for misinformation about the Pfizer vaccine. Not so much misinformation, just unapproved information. But Naomi Wolf was well known well before she became the bete noir of government and corporate censors. Uh, she's the author of many books, including probably most notably and the, the Beauty Myth, which uh, as a person who has essentially made a living based on his good looks, I, I had a lot of trouble uh, coming to terms with, but it's a very compelling, very compelling argument that and it's considered to have been a very, very influential book in the development of what I think they call third wave feminism. I don't know if she's still a third wave feminist today. I don't know if she if she accepts the terminology. Welcome, Dr. Naomi Wolf. How are you? Good. Thank you so much for having me on. But now, before we get talking about the really hot stuff, I, I saw in, in reading your biography that, that your father was a trans, a Yiddish translator. That's right. Um, my dad, Dr. Leonard Wolf, may he rest in peace, um, uh, you know, for most of his life was was at YIVO, which is the Center for Yiddish Studies in New York City. Um, and he he was born in Romania. Uh, Yiddish was his first language. And he was a wonderful, wonderful translator of great Yiddish classics that would have otherwise um, been lost, you know, if they hadn't been beautifully translated. Well, I'm surprised we didn't meet a Camp Hemshech then. Uh, you know, I, I sadly I was not raised speaking Yiddish. Uh, you know, he was it, right, uh, but by the time, but, but regular viewers know I wasn't I wasn't raised religious, and I was raised in a Yiddishist environment, wow. which which you would have felt very comfortable with, but not with Yiddish as a first language. And by the time I was in that camp, which was the Jewish Labor Bund summer camp, folks, right? Wow, um, awesome. which was it was essentially a bilingual Yiddish cultural camp. But where was it? It was in, well, when I went, it was originally in Hunter, New York. And then it was, uh, when I went, it was in Mountaindale, New York, which was quite an odd place to put a secularist, Bundist, um, Yiddish camp, considering that it is surrounded by very strictly Orthodox communities. There's a, well, a very famous yeshiva in Mountaindale, but that, far beyond our, far, but you, 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 did you grow up in New York though? No. No, that may be. Why? Um, <laughs> well, he was you, a, he was at Evo, so that would that was, in those days was no telecommuting. Sorry, uh, I grew up in California, so he yeah, was that's what Evo, I thought. You know, when I was uh, when I was an adult, so most of his career, but you know, after I was already grown, and um, so that explains why our paths didn't cross. I was at hippie camp in 
California. <laughs> that said, you're making me smile with your reminiscences because my dad was a total communist when he was a, a teenager. He actually worked, you know, he distributed the Daily Worker and he was even investigated by the House and American Activities Committee as a, he loves to tell the story as a useful idiot. So <laughs> like a fellow traveler, quote right, unquote. That- a, a badge of honor uh, is certainly in our in our crowd, and I always, you know, my family wasn't quite as radical. They adapted actually very comfortably to capitalism uh, once they, you know, came here as 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 we all almost, did, as, as, as almost everyone did. Yeah. But you came up. Uh, you, you were at Yale, which is a very comfortable place to be a radical, um, and you imbibed us. You know, you came there as kind of a red diaper baby to some extent, a little bit, you know little bit young for, perhaps for, for that category but you pretty much followed a radical path uh, getting involved in uh in in academic feminism and uh, you know doing much, the, you know, the first stage of your career is associated with feminist scholarship do you think any of your your your, your father's or your i don't know your, your mother's uh radical views inform that well so respectfully uh, I really, you know, I always disagree with this characterization. You know, I, I even disagree always with the term controversial, let alone conspiracy theorist, right? But even radical. I disagree to, with everyone that I'm controversial. To me, um, the you know, I feel like I've stayed an exactly um, solid course thoroughly ever since I was a teenager, believing in the same things, which are not- Just being a pain in the neck for everyone, basically. Well, no, I mean, I would go a little bit further than that to first- I mean, we're all supposed to be a pain in the neck according to the Declaration of Independence, right? And the Constitution. But my it was my grandmother, um, Faye Goldman, Dr. Faye Goldman, who was uh, the daughter of a, a teenage bride who came from Russia. And um, the name is Goleman, right? G-O-L-E-M-A-N? It is after they dropped the D uh, one generation before her, thinking it would make them sound less Jewish. <laughs> but, oh, boy. that. But, you know, people always mishear my name as Goldman. Interesting. And my wife's maiden name is Goldberg. But the reason they dropped the D was because her father, her father's family um, immigrated from Russia to Argentina. Mm. And Spanish-speaking countries, you don't have hard consonants like that one after another. So Goldberg became Goldberg. Makes sense. Uh, there are a lot of Goldbergs. Okay, but Goldman, which is the average of Goldman and Coleman, right. your grandmother. <laughs> so, yeah, she was very influential in my life. She was a professor of sociology, way ahead of her time, an advocate for the rights of immigrant women in the kind of central Californian Valley way before her time, an advocate for women having um, contraceptive access, you know, in the 30s and 40s. And so she, but she also was a great patriot and she was a great believer in, you know, the the capital L liberal tradition, civil rights, freedom of speech, the, you know, the marching in Skokie so that Nazis could, you know, exert their First Amendment rights. I mean, she, she had a poster in her office that, that had that Goethe quote, where they burn books that soon they will burn people. Um, so literally, I feel, and and she always was a great debater. She always made people marshal their evidence, you know, and and my dad also, you know, he was, he was an English professor. So he was just always about, you know, making the, making prose clear. Um, he wasn't a journalist, but 
I guess where I'm going with this is when I got to Yale, I already was deeply um, persuaded that, uh, you know, our traditions of free speech mattered, that our traditions of, you know, post-enlightenment verification of evidence and this pursuit of truth mattered, that everyone had that you know should have equal rights and equal dignity that's not the same of, as equality of outcome so these are just actually very old-fashioned values these are very retro values these are the values of immigrant kids in chicago in the 1920s you know getting a public education and 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 pledging allegiance to the flag and helping you know count the vote i mean these are old-fashioned american values so I just defy everybody, you know, it is the world has gone crazy to call me radical on the left or radical on the right now, which, which I'm being called simply because I believe in freedom of speech. I believe in the Constitution. I believe in the First Amendment. I believe in civil liberties. It, it Everyone should. Everyone should. And I mean, and that has uh, that, you know, that that's been the main theme of, of this podcast. Uh, I've tried to. To, to broaden it a little bit, but because it, it is, you know, implicates the work that I do, I can rationalize spending time in this a little bit, a little bit more. And I, and I do want to come back to it because I think it's, I, I just want to get back for a little bit on, on the history. When you wrote the beauty myth, the criticism, was, was there anything about the beauty myth, which I didn't read, uh, which, um, drew on those values or was that an entirely different I mean, conversation totally Please like feminism, sure feminism properly interpreted is not this psychotic gender war that we're seeing around us now feminism the feminism that i with which i grew up was you know betty Friedan, again jewish lady probably from immigrant parents. I don't recall from her biography, but, you know, literally like let us into it's the, it's the same immigrant discussion, you know, let us be treated on our merits. When we apply to Yale, let us be treated on our merits. When we try to become doctors. I mean, it's literally an extension of, you know, the Jews in the thirties saying there shouldn't be quotas, right. You know, we should be evaluated uh, not on whether or not we're Christian, but on whether or not we're competent. Um, so that's literally what what feminism should be, you know, equality. Uh, it's merit, meritocracy. Um, so and, the, so, and, the, and the, 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 the premise or the, the, the thesis of the beauty myth, right, was that beauty is a social construct. No, not at no? all. OK, you have been mis you have been mischaracterized. Uh, well, I mean, I point out that that beauty is constructed differently in different societies, which is true. I mean, the ideal woman has varied significantly, even in America in the West. Um, but that's not only not over time, but I mean, it, even across the world. Totally, geographically, totally varied. Um, and, and there are cultures in which male beauty matters more than female beauty. It was, and certainly throughout the animal kingdom, male beauty matters a lot more than female beauty. Um, but so I was just basically there challenging the kind of um, ridiculous, uh, you know, baseless uh, evolutionary biologists argument um, in the selfish gene, especially Richard Dawkins was very popular at that time, basically sure. saying, that, you know, males should just inseminate everybody because there's no morality to that because that's just the way nature set things up. And it's women's job to be beautiful and fertile and it's men's job to acquire wealth, which makes them attractive. So I was just like challenging that. But um, 
but really the core of my book is a, a political analysis, which just picks up from Betty Friedan um, and picks up from my study of 19th century women in the West uh, that I began at Oxford as a Rhodes Scholar in the 80s. And there I'm just pointing out that, you know, in the 19th century, where there was the first great uh, push for women's rights and property rights and, and political rights in Britain and America, uh, women were held back by um, an ideology that the ideal woman should be passive and tightly corseted and silent, you know, and doll-like. And then fast forward, um, you know, there was a great leap forward for women's rights post World War II. And then Betty Friedan pointed out in, by the 60s, early 60s, the problem that has no name, meaning this ideology of uh, homemaking being the perfect housewife. And my wife and I, my wife is a very accomplished uh, lawyer and writer. And, you know, in discussing the issue of the what's what, one, of, one of the things that we find has put the most in our observations has put the most stress on modern life is the necessity of two incomes. Oh yeah, that's tough, yeah. And it, it, and it, and it, but, it, but it really presents a dilemma because people like my wife who are highly intelligent and highly able, also they're only the only one, they're the only ones able to have babies. Right. So how, you know, once they've been in Paris, how do you keep them down on the farm? So <laughs> talking about the fifties, right. And the, and the sixties, right. you had Rosie, the riveter, you had this, this revolution where women are getting out of the house because they have to. And then through the fifties, we're jamming them back in right mm. into, into this stultified, uh, you know, Donna Reed, God bless her. She didn't do anything wrong. She's a professional performer, you know, but how did we? What is? Do you understand the idealized concept of what an American middle-class woman should be like as a reaction to what happened with women in the forties? Well, I guess what I realized in writing the beauty myth, looking at exactly that era, right, the post-war period when all these women, as you say, had been, you know, central to the war effort. They, the government had propagandized them essentially to come into the factories to take the place of the men who were fighting the war. Um, so what I realized looking at that period is that the men came home from the war and needed their jobs back. So the government engaged in another propaganda effort to make women feel like if they were not home and occupying their time full time with these very minute, trivial tasks, you know, over and above just keeping a house clean and raising children, um, then there would be real social unrest because and the, women- and the, and the number of trivial tasks had been reduced by an order of magnitude because you had a washing machine now instead of a washboard absolutely yeah you've had you clearly you could have taken feminism 101 you know that's exactly right um well so the point is they if they didn't get the women to leave the factories and leave the industrial the high paying jobs you know there would be conflict they needed to give the men the jobs back so that was that was my first insight along with what happened in the 19th century that there is a backlash quality to ideologies around women and that they're not organic necessarily. They don't arise organically from the culture. They often arise from wanting a certain goal. So then to fast forward to the period of the beauty myth, which really updates the feminine mystique, um, which is Betty Friedan's book about, you know, that like 
well-educated women sitting around having nothing to do at home uh, from their point of view. Um, in my generation as a 20 something in college, I realized there's a new ideology and it was this ideology of, of beauty labor to become this perfectly uh, kind of unattainable image in the eighties at that time. It was like very tall, blonde, you know, unnaturally shaped, you know, like very thin uh, breast implants. Um, right. It's uh, the eight. It's, it's not till the eighties that the emaciated model becomes the female ideal. Exactly. Through the and 70s, you had cur like, curviness. Curvy. Think of all the, who, who were our TV stars then? Lonnie Anderson, you know, the, the, you know, that was, you know, 60s and 70s, you know, the, and then boom, all of a sudden everyone's on Coke and everyone is waiting. <laughs> a little earlier, I do want to note, um, when the, when the, birth control pill came out in the mid 60s there was a sudden vogue for twiggy who was you know oh, that right. anorexic thinness but like you know you're certainly right like what i did look at and there are studies that show that men prefer women who look fertile meaning they're they have curves and you turns i mean i don't mean to get all like graphic with a conservative audience but um, women need a layer of body fat in order to maintain their fertility. So when you have this this ideal that you know reasserted itself for sure in the 80s of extreme thinness, and all the women around me in college were anorexic or bulimic or having exercise disorders in order to fit that ideal. Um, what I noticed is that the labor it takes, the preoccupied uh, obsessiveness that it takes to be that thin was a political sedative keeping women of my generation from being assertive as assertive and and um as demanding hold on, hold on a second though because you said something the women need the body fat in order to not only bear children but to nurture them naturally but if they're super skinny they're sending a message that they're actually not ideal um mates for reproduction isn't that true i mean let me you suggest know, this what, what you think of i'm not because a man but, sorry it <laughs> might be what the message is that in in an era in in, in the post in, in in the contraceptive era and the free love era yeah. women are not being held out as procreation that's true models they're being held out as recreation models yeah that's well put Thank That's you. Right. I just, just That's a catchy if you just came up with it. Um, yeah, like I'm not a man, but for sh I think it's really interesting that when women lose enough of their their uh, kind of organic shape to be as thin as the ideal, they lose their menstrual cycle and they become infertile. Like that's notable. So now I'm gonna. So now here's the big segue, and it's, it's so geschmack as your father would say. <laughs> not organic you said the this these phenomena are not organic and a couple of sentences earlier you said the government the government started a campaign the government provided the impetus for a reimagining of what american womanhood should look like this brings us to a lot of your subsequent work including of course your criticism of pfizer and the military pharma deep state intelligence apparatus complex. But before we get to that, how did the government, what did the government do back before governments were literally in charge of the media as they are, as it is now, or was it, what was the government doing in the fifties 
that was helping to send this message or, 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 or enabling this message? Great question. Well, I'll need to, you know, look back at that book, but um, for sure there was actually a government campaign saying like, you know, go home. You know, he needs his job back. I mean, they're just like the the flip side of the Rosie the Riveter campaign. Which was also- with posters and, Correct. you know, that sort of. And then look at Hollywood. I mean, the government um, at that time had a very close relationship with Hollywood and and there were agents of the government working with um, big studios. Uh, they did during the war, you know, to promote the war effort, to promote Hollywood films about the war that were, you know, heroic and didn't show the carnage and didn't deter people from enlisting. Um, well, suddenly the brave and feisty heroines of the war period, you know, think about Audrey, uh, I'm sorry, Catherine Hepburn and other uh, very assertive, sassy, um, liberated women, you know, in the war period, uh, that all changed. And you did have the Diana Doors in Britain and the, um, uh, I'm sorry, in the early 50s, the um, blonde Marilyn Monroe. Monroe. Exactly. Um, you know, Sophia Loren, I mean, the the you, fashion changed, you know, you corsets came back into fashion, you know, they hadn't been in fashion since the 19th century, um, big, long, voluminous skirts, Dior's new look, hard to move around, you certainly can't be in a factory with layers and layers of petticoats and a crinoline, right? Um, it's, you know, same thing that happened in the 19th century. So, but, but, but I mean, this, it's really a change. Oh, I'm yeah. sorry, I'm, I'm so sorry I interrupted you. No, the, the, um, so much of what you described, though, are cultural phenomena that it's hard for me to imagine the government having an impact on. But I could just be naive. I mean, Dior's Dior's not even in, in the United States back in those days. Uh, there was actually fashion being dictated out of Paris. I mean, now there's no such thing as fashion, except for, you know, just like an economic subcategory of people who are in their own universe. You know, you're quite right. It wasn't just the um, the government, obviously, but also government and capitalism also often work together. So you no longer had the, I mean, there was going to be a big problem because you had all this money going into building um, munitions and going into building the, the you know, the products for the war effort. You needed to create some other use for all those factories and some other demand. So you had all of this advertising and um, again, television, you know, in the fifties was becoming widely adopted. Look at the TV shows that were being funded by general electric or funded by the manufacturers of, you know, those washing machines, those, um, those utilities, the refrigerators, the, the, the products that were now being produced in the factories, you know, pivoting from the war effort. Well, they needed consumers to buy them. So again, that the, the domestic um, Ralph Cramden, you know, like uh, you, you had, you know, ditzy heroines like Lucille Ball, right? They weren't the the brave, courageous, fighting ladies of the forties, um, or the, you know, the who knows best. Father knows best. Father knows best, exactly. So that whole, you know, what we think of as the nuclear family really was consolidated in that period in American culture, um, because previously. Um, you know, women had worked, right? And I mean, women have been working in, since in in this country since the Industrial Revolution. Um, factory girls in Lynn. So anyway, were, were any men killed in the Triangle f- f- Fire? Where it was, it was almost it was all women, right? It was all women. That's a good point. Yeah. Okay, so and a lot of people don't appreciate that 
government has been involved and had had a finger on the scales of culture, certainly since well, for a very long time. I mean, before our, our concepts of what the First Amendment did and didn't permit are very recent. A lot of them uh, are the result of Supreme Court rulings that occurred during your and my lifetime. Uh, in, you know, in the 50s, it was not uncommon at all for congressional committees to call people from Hollywood and call people from the comic book industry and call people all kinds of industries, all kinds of hearings about culture and sending messages you know, nice, you know, a nice comic book industry you have there would be a shame if anything were to happen to it. They didn't have to pass legislation, which is what they did with, with social media. And now we're going to fast forward to your experience. Uh, you find yourself, what made you all of a sudden so, you know, go, go from this Kulturkampf, uh, not even Kulturkampf really, but you, you observations that, you know, that were of, of a certain sociological bent. Uh, and then all of a sudden you're finding yourself fighting the pharmaceutical industry. Well, again, you know, to me, it's a very straight line. Um, I was looking in the beauty myth at, you know, free will really matters to me. And I think that's a Jewish value too, you know, free will. Yeah. Um, and, and I personally think God really wants people to have free will. Oh, so, yeah. And, and we come from tyrants, right? And, and tyranny has devoured us not, not very long ago. So um, I'm alert to tyranny. And I also wrote a book. So, so from, you know, I started with cultural criticism, absolutely right, the beauty myth. And then I looked at, you know, different stages of a woman's life. I looked at adolescence in promiscuities. I looked at um, childbirth and misconceptions. All of these, in, in each case, women were being kind of, shunted into certain viewpoints and behaviors by a lot of pressures around them. Some of them government in the case of, you know, the beauty myth that, that I identify, some of them um, capitalist advertising, you know, some of them uh, when it came to childbirth, um, the, the, the uh, obstetrical industry, right? The gynecological industry. So I've always been looking at that, the pharmaceutical industry. I looked at, I broke the story of silicone breast implants and the fact that they were dangerous. And I did that by looking at, um, mailings that were being sent to cosmetic surgeons in which they were they were offered insurance to get multiple implants because it was taken as given that the first ones would break. So women were not being told this, right? So, you know- And you use the term industry to describe what had historically been called professions. Right. And that's, a, that's a very important point. Exactly right. Well, and I guess I got- acclimated to looking in that direction from a look at the beauty industry in the in the beauty myth you know in the dieting industry i mean these you know we uh, we get how capitalism works at least we used to till 2020 if there's a big deal of money to be made from driving people in a certain direction whether you bully them or shame them or lie to them or coerce them someone's going to do that um and we used to all understand that so fast forward in 2008 I wrote a book called The End of America. And again, to me, very organic to do that because I care about liberty. Um, and I, there I looked, it was the Bush era and I looked, Bush too. I looked at times and places in history where democracies were subverted or fascist, fascism reigned. And in and then I, I isolated 10 steps that tyrants always take in order to um, undermine a democracy and a and, and 
have a successful coup. And I, I, I saw the Bush administration engaging in a number of those. Um, well, so then I was primed uh, in 2020 to realize that um, we were at step 10, you know, with the pandemic right away because emergency law is step 10, suspending the rule of law. So what was the point at which you realized that it wasn't, in your view, George W. Bush or even Republicans, but rather something bigger than either political party that would and could put these steps into place? That is a great question. So I confess that when I wrote The End of America, I hoped it was a partisan issue, right? Um, but even then, when people were so excited o- about Obama, and you were a big supporter of Clinton, and you were involved in the in the Gore campaign. Yeah, I mean, big. You know, I was a Democrat. I I was okay. hired by. I voted for Bill Clinton, and I was a concern. I was every bit as right wing as I am now. He he, he struck me as a better choice than George he was W. A good Bush. President. I I don't like him personally. I think he's lecherous, but. You know, I he was a very good president. Those were years of peace and prosperity. There was some good. I don't think he was full on globalist like the Clinton Foundation later became at that time. Those were good policies. He was actually reining in some of the craziness of the left. Um, he got a lot of criticism for it too. But and I I did uh, work directly for Vice President Gore in his uh, run for president. So I guess where I'm going is. When I wrote The End of America, I didn't know how much of an octopus, a transnational octopus, the World Economic Forum globalist cadre was. Um, That said, I thought people were very naive in thinking, oh, Obama's elected, that's going to solve this. Um, And in fact, in the first six months of Obama's administration, I went to Guantanamo and they were building it up. And his first promise had been to dismantle Guantanamo and, you know, get those people fair trials um, or send them home. And he, he didn't, I went to Guantanamo. I'm one of the few reporters. I don't know any reporters who went to Guantanamo and it was terrifying. And that was under an Obama administration, the worst kind of tyranny. Um, I'm not saying those people are angels. We don't know. They don't have a fair trial, but they had been held for like 11 years, you know, by the time I went there, eight years. I don't remember the exact date. You know something's wrong, right, when you say, let's have a prison in a country where we basically have a lease. Right, exactly. American law doesn't apply. Exactly. Tells you something. Well, I mean, it's it's beyond belief. You know, like don't don't send me down that road because what I saw there was so terrifying. You know, the the Red Cross and the Geneva Convention say that any prisoner anywhere in the world gets to get mail from their family, get visited by the Red Cross to make sure they're not being tortured. None of that was happening. You know, the, the, you know the, the, they couldn't even talk to their lawyers. The room they were speaking to their lawyers was bugged. I mean, it was dis, it was disgusting. Well, I mean, it, we, we, you don't have to go to, to Cuba anymore to go or to American, American Cuba to see what prosecutors and prison officials are permitted by our in. justice so, system. Exactly. So I tried to tell people at that time, look, Obama, you know, it may be Obama. I was one of like three people in the Obama years who said, look, he's droning American citizens. He has a kill list. Look, Guantanamo is being built up. No one's being let out. You know, there are top security prisons in the United States where people are being held without trial. Um, No one listened to me 
on the left in those years. But anyway, point is, because of all of that work, uh, I was well prepared to notice what was happening very early when um, the pandemic rolled out. And I did I, I didn't fully understand, as I said, that it was metapartisan, but but very quickly, and I was very much assisted by having married someone who spent 12 years in military intelligence and and is in other kinds of intelligence, who was able to tell me early on, China is behind this. You know, this is a bioweapon. Um, you know, there's a friend cleavage site that, you know, it is man-made. Like I literally remember sitting in our screen porch out there and Brian came out in like March, you know, of 2020, my husband, Brian O'Shea, and, and said those things. There is a friend cleavage site. It is not organic. It is man-made. And I was like, honey, I love you, but this is crazy. What does that term mean? Oh, I'm sorry. He was noting before anyone else Noted I have to it. pretend I don't know, okay, because That's of my fine. own classified. That's right, right. Um, that that the virus had elements of not coming from nature, of being um, art of gain of function. Okay, but user cleavage, foreign cleavage. Furin, F-U-R-I-N, furin cleavage site, a part of the virus that only oh. have gotten there through human intervention. And he was right. Now that's well established. Point is, he helped me. I mean, both of us didn't know how big these tentacles were. And initially, we didn't know it was Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, World Economic Forum, World Health Organization, China, like this evil cabal and big tech. This is what I spell out in my book, The Bodies of Others. But quickly, by looking at, um, you know, looking at who was behind the pronouncements, uh, we quickly found the paper trail. And, you know, he's kind of a genius at, at, finding things legally on government websites that people don't realize can be retrieved. <laughs> so do you draw on his work or do you, does he, do. does he, yeah. I totally draw on his, I do. I credit him, but I draw on his work. So thanks to him, I was very quickly able to see, oh, wait a minute, this is bigger than Republicans. It's bigger than Democrats. And of course it was obviously going on simultaneously around the world. And I've been in journalism my whole career. And I know you can't do that. You know, you can't align every publisher, every reporter, same language, same talking points around the world, 120 languages without AI and without um, some meta-national message entity sending the bulletins out everywhere. In the remaining minutes that we have, now you and I are going to explain to everyone who's hung on this long, or this will be the excerpt, why it's not the Jews who are behind all this. Because keep in mind, virtually none of the power players that you've mentioned, okay, George Soros, now we're in, is Jewish, okay? Uh, I think Borla is Jewish. Borla? I think so. Okay. But let's Bill Clinton, Barack Obama. Uh, you, who, um, there are a lot Bill Gates. on the bad side. Well, 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 prove, me, prove me wrong. He's Jewish. Is, is it the Jews? Are we are we in on this? Are we at least think, making money on it? I, I don't think we're not. Look, you know, this is an essay I haven't written yet because it's such a minefield. But the, the heroes who are fighting this, a lot of them are Jewish. Steve Kirsch, me, if I may say so. Um, a lot of them are Irish. Malone, Glenn, Green, Glenn Greenwald. Sorry, Glenn Greenwald, exactly. And, you know, some are Armenian, Leslie Mnookin. It's, a, it's people, some are of African descent, like um, Dr. Alexander. Uh, right. And so I think that, I think that there is something about having 
genocide in your recent ancestral memory that helps you recognize don't sit still now is the time to fight because they will starve us out if you're irish they will feed us into ovens if you're jewish they will massacre us if you're armenian you know all they'll clear us off our land if you're scottish right all of these like that's a gift in a way at a time like this to have this ancestral memory of genocide that said, there are bad guys on the other side a plenty who are African-American, who are Jewish, who are Irish. And there I would just say, you know, it's a bit of a mystery, but it, it's also maybe uh, also ancestral memory. If you're if you're not going to be the oppressed, you align with the oppressor. Um, but I don't know. Like, I'd love to be able to talk to Rochelle Walensky and say, you're a Jewish lady. How do you sleep at night knowing you've murdered babies and fetuses? I'd love to. Have You're not likely to get her to answer, even if you could ask it. Indeed. Okay, so now we know the article that we're going to write together. That'll be for some. That, but but you've got to run. You've been fantastic. I hope I've. I, I hope it's been a little bit different of a discussion from from the from the ones that that you have. Great for joining. Anything people should know about other than everything? Yes. Yeah. Thank you. I guess we didn't talk about what's in the Pfizer documents, which is usually what uh, people want me to. But I don't need to go into it. I'll just leave everyone with the headline. It is the greatest crime against humanity in recorded history. And again, I'm the granddaughter of a woman who lost nine siblings in the Holocaust. So I don't say that lightly. But in terms of scale, it's bigger. Um, the people dying, the people sterilized. And I refer people to dailycloud.io to see for themselves, to see the 70 reports for themselves created by 3,500 doctors and scientists or uh, the book, uh, the Pfizer documents, War Room Daily Cloud Pfizer documents analysis reports is on Amazon and you, it is a life-saving book and it shows you what's in the Pfizer documents. And that's what I tweeted in your live stream uh, before we recorded this today. Follow Naomi Wolf. She's got all kinds of things to telling you to tell you. Great talking to you, and I hope we have a chance to do it again. Yes, thank you so much. Take all care. Off. Hey, thank you for listening to the Coleman Nation podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. For more information, please visit the show's website at coleman-nation.com. That's coleman-nation.com or you can visit my blog at likelihoodofconfusion.com. Join us next time on the Coleman Nation podcast and have a great day.